I have before you a high-budget offering box. And I'll tell you about that as soon as the kids leave, up to the fifth grade. You heard Harlan tell about the 50th anniversary of Mark Air sponsoring kids to camp and counting on us to be one of 50 organizations, churches, individuals, who will give $1,000 to help get these kids to camp. And for these kids, it's their only chance, and it's life-changing. And I hope we can get behind it, the miss, Missing in Action, the Missions in Action team has committed $500 to this, asking us to donate the balance that we can come up with $1,000 for this project. And this box will be wherever Lisa puts it, on the back table somewhere back there. Thank you. Well, for the last many months, about almost 40 months, we'd been in the Gospel of John. We departed from it for a few weeks for a particular um, topical series on To the Glory of God, but back to it as we go through the Easter season, the Passion Week. And we find ourselves in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 19, and I'm going to begin reading just a couple of verses, verse 17. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called a place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. Two weeks ago, we looked at the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. This morning, we're going to be looking at what did it all mean, and what does it mean to me personally? Father, I thank you for the incredible love that you expressed by sending your Son, the eternal Son of God, to die for our sins. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you submitted yourself to the will of the Father And an obedience came, not just as an illustration to us of what it means to submit and obey to a higher authority. But I thank you, Father, that you did it because of your great love for us and accomplished on that cross what we could never accomplish on our own for ourselves. So I pray, Father, that you would give us those realizations and understandings this morning by your Spirit to our spirit, to our heart, that we might comprehend with our heart as well as our mind what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, speaking of what it it all meant, I want to begin with the big picture. And if you picked up one of the outlines coming in, on the back you'll see a cross, and I'm going to begin there. <clears throat> I 
Earlier in our study of the Gospel of John, we were in chapter 3, and the last verse of chapter 3, verse 36, which is a commentary on the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, where Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says this, He who believes in the Son, Jesus, has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I believe it is, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. The heart disposition of God towards mankind is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But until such time as we come to a place of repentance and faith towards Jesus, the wrath of God abides upon us. It's a judicial wrath. God's not mad at us, but his anger, his wrath must be expressed because he's a holy God upon ungodliness and unrighteousness. The judge, when you disobey the law, is not mad at you. But by George, when you go to court, he's going to fine you or send you to the pokey or whatever you got coming. It's not because he's mad, but that's the righteous, that's the demand of the law. The demand of the law of a holy God is that his wrath must be poured out upon unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, what do we do with that? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Many of your translations say, atoning sacrifice. Pretty much means the same thing. God's violated justice was satisfied. God was propitiated. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the debt. God has been propitiated. The definition on the screen, propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God from sinners by satisfying violated justice. God is satisfied that sin's debt has been paid. That is why in 1 John 1, 9, we are told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. He's just, he's righteous. There is a moral grounds, there is a moral basis upon which a holy God can forgive sinful man. It's because the debt was paid by an innocent substitute. The need for God to be propitiated, the need was sin. And the second thing that happened at the cross, Jesus' death not only propitiated God, but it paid the redemption price to free sinners from the slave market of sin. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, the price is described. Knowing that you were not redeemed, redemption, redeemed, to pay the purchase price, you weren't redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct, and the traditions that you received from father, your fathers, 
but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death. Inalterable, separation from God. That debt is inalterable. It must be paid. Fortunately, it can be paid by an innocent substitute. And that, that is what Jesus did. And in so doing, he reconciled man to God in, a, in this sense. The barrier between God and man was removed. And that was sin. Man is now reconciled to God in the sense that the barrier has been removed. But Scripture goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore be reconciled to God. Now what are we talking about here? Illustrate it this way. A 10-year-old boy is walking down the sidewalk. 10-year-old boys are usually about 4th grade. They're very quick on their feet and sharp in their mind. And as he is walking down the, the street, a neighbor's Rottweiler comes growling and barking and charging him. Quick as a wink, up the tree goes the, the fourth grader. Phew. No big deal. He's up the tree. But he is no longer reconciled to the ground. There's a barrier between the little boy up the tree and the ground, and that barrier is a Rottweiler. The owner of the Rottweiler comes chains up the Rottweiler, takes him and puts him in his cage and locks the cage. The boy in the tree is now reconciled to the ground. The barrier has been removed. But he must be reconciled to the ground. He needs to climb down the tree. Now, spiritually, how do we climb down the tree? That's the fourth word that we have here, regeneration. The act of God whereby he imparts spiritual life to a believer. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In in John chapter 1, verse 11, I believe it is, he came to his own. His own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. How do you become a child of God? Same way you became a child of your parents. You were born. You were born into the family of God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. In the word that's used there in John is to receive him. Now we're going to say more about this uh, a little later on. So the big picture, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, and when Jesus, the eternal, spotless, blemishless Lamb of God, died on that cross, God was propitiated. The redemption price for sin was paid. Man can now be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, who then brings regeneration. 
and we become a new creature in Christ. This is just some of the big picture of what was happening when Jesus died on that cross. Uh, it, it, it's more far-reaching than, one, than what one would think just on the surface. To our text now, in John chapter 19, verse 17, he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, But he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. A lot was going on there. Predestined from eternity past that Jesus would die, he was foreordained for this purpose. For this purpose he came. And as the soldiers, and as Pilate, and as the crowd, and as the religious rulers did their thing, it was all because God allowed them to vent their anger and their hatred because it accomplished his purpose that Jesus might die for our sins. Humanly, Jesus on that cross represented an emblem of shame. He became a curse for us. It's told in Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In many ways here, in verse 17, it says he went out. All through the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were running through the wilderness, they would go with outside the camp. There they would dump the garbage, the refuge. There the uh, people guilty of some crime or whatever were executed and buried outside the camp. Here it was a place of a skull. Um, that's what the word Golgotha means. The Hebrew word, excuse me, the Greek word for skull is cranium. We use that, we know that word, the old skull bone. Uh, something I did not know in Luke 22, I think it is, verse 23, it uses the word Calvary. They led him to Calvary. We've all grown up with that. What does Calvary mean? Skull. It's a Latin word for skull. They took him to a place of a skull. It was a place of infamy. It either looked like a skull or it was just a reference to what happened, what went on there. Furthermore, in verse 18, he was crucified between two thieves, and Pilate had this placard, this is King Jesus, King of the Jews. This was part of his rubbing it into them. He was an anti-Semitic Gentile that hated the Jews. 
And every chance he got, he rubbed it in. And this was just, this is your king, ha, look at that. That's kind of the intent there. That's humanly. But from a heavenly perspective, none of this was apart from God's sovereign plan. In addition, even the casting of lots for Jesus' tunic was one of over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. Then we see the cries from the cross. I think one of the most fascinating studies I've ever done was when as a young pastor I was called upon to do one of the cries of the cross in a Good Friday service, a community Good Friday service. That was about 45 years ago. Uh, it was interesting. I, I really enjoyed that. Three of these cries from the cross are found in John 19, beginning of verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be filled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The first cry from the cross was a cry of tenderness. <clears throat> Woman, behold your son. Disciple, behold your mother. In the midst of his unspeakable suffering, Jesus was sensitive to the need of another, his human mother. I think it's so fascinating that he addressed her as woman rather than mother. She was no longer just a mother. Jesus was no longer just a son. He was now her Savior. Verse 28, uh, read that again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. It's as if Jesus knew that there was one last Old Testament prophecy yet to be fulfilled. I believe it's Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. And he said, I thirst. And he was given gall and, and vinegar to drink. And then immediately after that, he cries out, a cry of triumph, it is finished. The Greek word there is tetelestai. It is finished. I can just tetelestai. Now, he may have shouted in Aramaic. I'm not sure. It all comes out the same. It is finished. Can you imagine? All of the Old Testament prophecies had been fulfilled. The last one, I thirst. The Old Testament demands of the law were fulfilled in Christ, satisfied, and salvation's door was open to all, any who would come. 
in faith to him. Heaven's doors were opened. No longer having to give sacrifices. No longer having to go through a priest. Direct access to God through Jesus Christ. I can just imagine the, after the torment that he went through, how he must have felt when he cried out, it, it is finished. Last month, uh, I had made the mistake of letting my daughter-in-law know that I knew how to paint. And you all forget what I'm saying, because since then, my hands have gone backwards. If you notice, I can't paint any longer. But uh, she asked me to come and paint the um, uh, Kendas, one of the owner or uh, retailers at the shop there. She, there's three shops there. I had to paint all that. And it was all white on white trim. Windows, doors, floor, floorboard, both sides. You don't want to get the paint on the floor. You don't want to get it on the wall. I'm laying on my side like this. You know, I guess there's new ways of doing it, but I'm well, in the old guard. I, I just cut in everything freehand. It took hours, and you paint white on white, trying to, to be very, very careful. You get it all painted, you go back and put a second coat on. And on the doors, you put four and five coats. Man, I, every spare moment for three solid weeks, I was painting. When I got done, a week ago Wednesday, I went out of that shop, I clicked my heels together, gave the key to Jenny, and I said, if you want any more painting done, do it yourself. I'm, I'm done. The elation, can you imagine what Jesus must have felt after what he went through? He cried out, it is finished. And then notice the last words of verse 30. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He was in charge to the very last second. The Romans didn't crucify Jesus. The Jews didn't crucify Jesus. Jesus gave himself. And while he was on that cross, it was love that put him there and love that kept him there. He could have called 12 legions of angels. Seeing those Roman guards making sure everything was kosher. What a picture of an ipness in the light of what Jesus could have done. And when the thieves, and when the crowd, and when the Jewish religious leaders mocked Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God, come down. Man, I would have been down right now. The scorn, the scoffing, the mocking, all of that. Jesus bore our shame in more ways than we can begin to imagine as he died there on that cross. Some may wonder, why doesn't the account of the crucifixion end right there? Because it says that he died. How do we know he was dead? Because he was buried. He had to be dead in order to be resurrected. Modern scholars will say, oh, 
he didn't really die. He was just put into the tomb. And the coolness of the tomb, he kind of uh, re revived and walked out of his, of his um, tomb. No, Jesus died dead. And he literally rose from the dead three days later. Well, how do we know? Well, Scripture gives the evidence. Over 500 people at one time saw Jesus, the disciples, Mary Magdalene, various others. You can't prove empirically that Jesus rose from the dead. Neither can you prove that George Washington crossed the Potomac that Christmas way back when during the Revolutionary War. You can't prove it empirically. How do we prove historical facts? Eyewitness accounts. That's why the story goes on. What follows are the essential proofs needed to validate Jesus' death here, later, his resurrection. Come next week and you'll hear about that. Verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified by him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. <clears throat> when they saw that he was dead, they did not break his legs. Why? What's the significance of that? Well, on the cross, because the Romans were very cruel operators, they would build a little platform at the foot of the, of the feet of the person being crucified so that they could push up. Otherwise, they would die of um, asphyxiation. Uh, what's the right word where you can't breathe? Huh? Suffocation. Thank you. I knew that. <laughs> All right. Suffocation. They would push up so that they wouldn't suffocate and their, their, their suffering would be extended. And that's why they would come along when there was time finally, okay, you've suffered enough, they'd come along and smash right there so that they would no longer be able to push up. That's why they broke the legs of the, those that were crucified. But when they came to Jesus, obviously he was already dead. And the soldier took a, his spear and was walking by up. Water and blood, he's been dead for, already for a while. They didn't break his his bones. Why? That scripture might be fulfilled. And in Numbers chapter 9, verse 12, if you read that, the, the Passover lamb had to be spotless without blemish and not a bone broken. And Jesus is our Passover. Once and for all, sacrificed on behalf of our sins. That soldier fulfilling prophesy or making prophecy Fulfilled unwittingly. His body, I'm getting behind here, his blood. <clears throat> Verse 34 One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. I've read a lot of information as to the exact cause of Jesus' death. Many, many suggestions as to the exact pathology of why, how Jesus died. Folks, who cares? 
Jesus was dead, dead. He was dead. He died. Water and the blood as it came out demonstrated that. And then his burial, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who who first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. A hundred pounds of spices, tightly wrapped, then put in the tomb. If the crucifixion hadn't killed Jesus, his burial would have. Can you imagine a hundred pounds of spices wrapped in linen? Again, you would suffocate. The point being, the reason this is here, is that Jesus died dead. No death, no resurrection. And I think one last significant thing has to do with the prophecies that are in this section of scripture. Throughout these verses, several references have been made to Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled at the crucifixion. There are five of them here in this text, and when you put this to the test of mathematical probability, there is no other explanation other than Jesus was who he said he was, and his death did indeed atone for our sins. And here they are, The first three casting lots, when Jesus said, I thirst, and his bones were not broken. All of these are prophecies in the Psalms given 950 years before Jesus died. And then in Zechariah 12.10, and again in Isaiah 53, uh, which would be uh, 400 to 600 years, those two prophecies, before Jesus died, it prophesied that he'd be pierced. And then again in Isaiah 53, 600 years it said that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, I don't know that it actually said that in this. Yeah, it does. No, in a new, it says a new tomb. In the Gospel of John, it says uh, um, it was Joseph of Arimathea. It was, he was a rich Jewish believer. He loaned this new tomb. Nobody had ever been buried in it. He loaned that tomb to be burial place of Jesus. And he was a rich man, and in Isaiah 53 it says that he would be buried with the rich. And, the, and that's uh, just slightly referenced there at the end. There are so many other prophecies that I could have put in there besides that. <clears throat> now, I said I would have more to say about regeneration or being born again at the beginning of this message, and this is the reason to conclusion. In John chapter 20, verse 30, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. 
What does it mean to believe? And to believe that Jesus is the Christ. One of the things that just deeply concerns me, uh, I've been at this preacher thing for 45 years, and our culture today, our Christian culture today, is so vastly different from what it was 45 years ago. And I have seen in America where, when I was young, 65% of Americans at least went to church. Today, it's about 20% are affiliated in one way or another with churches. And of those who are, many, I believe, um, are religious but lost. And one of the reasons I believe that is so is that we have come to an understanding and I think the misrepresentation of the gospel have presented, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. Yeah, that's easy. I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe he died on the cross. I even believe he rose from the dead. Can you believe that and still go to hell? Yes. Don't forget that the demons believe that and tremble. Going to be any demons in heaven? No. What's the missing ingredient here? True belief acknowledges that Jesus is who he said he was, Lord, curios, highest authority. Another word is despotes, from which we get the word despot. An absolute authority, and in the definition of that word is with the right of vengeance, and only God has that right. Belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is an acknowledgement that he is the boss. He is the ultimate authority. He's in charge. And here's the rub. In faith, I submit to his authority. When I say I believe in Jesus, I am acknowledging that I am under his authority. It's not just an academic belief. It is a whole commitment of one's life and the only appropriate response to an authority over us is obedience. And Jesus himself said over and over, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me. To believe in Jesus is not going to get you to heaven. To surrender your life and will to him Placing your entire trust in what he did for us as the basis of our eternal salvation. That's what brings being born again. Not just some lip service of, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Go to church two or three times every year and put $5 in the offering. I'm good to go. No. And as we enter into faith with Jesus, it is a relationship. And for me, it was a relationship that has grown through the years. I came to Jesus in fear. I didn't want to go to hell. But I have learned through relationship with him and in obedience to him, I've entered into a relationship that is very precious to me. I can't imagine one minute of living without Christ. 
I've known him since I was six or seven years of age. And I appreciate who he is. And I'm looking forward to living in his presence one day. Because of the cross, as one who has truly come to Jesus in saving faith, we know that our lives are not futile. (laughs) I have purpose and meaning to burn. If you've lived a few years, you've come to understand that as you're climbing the mountain, you've got the purpose of climbing the mountain, achievement in your career, whatever it may be. You get close to the top and you start to become disillusioned. You get to the top and you find out, well, now now what? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything here in this life is vanity. The best you can do is go to work and enjoy your work and, uh, and uh, enjoy your family. But that's about it. The, everything else is vanity. It's just empty. But I've, I've had the privilege, not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a believer, a Christian, in relationship with the eternal God, and my purpose is to bring glory to him and uh, tell others about Jesus, live my life in a way that others might, hey, what's the reason for the hope that lies within you? And we can, we can speak to that. I have meaning. I have purpose. Life is not futile. And our failures are not fatal. Man. You ask me, when's the last time you sinned? And I say, you mean today? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, we are very flawed. We fail often. But Jesus picks us up. He's a great high priest that understands all, all about us. And if we're stubborn and rebellious, he will discipline us. He'll take us to the woodshed if need be. He's a faithful father to us. If you're not receiving discipline from the Lord when you're sinning, You need to get saved. God only chastens those who are his sons. If you're not chastened, you're not a believer. Really take that to heart. Our lives are not futile, our failures are not fatal, and our deaths are not final. And I I love this, this reality. John chapter 11 Jesus, at the, at the death of Lazarus, talking to Mary and Martha, beginning of verse 20, he said this. Well, then, Mar- uh, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, and Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And then Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And here's the the good one. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Your body will. Your 
spirit and soul will depart from your body, but you're not going to die. A Christian never dies. He just enters into a new dimension of life that we can't begin to comprehend in a mortal body. Though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Wow. I like that. Almost said can't wait, but I'll go when he wants me to. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Lord, it is so very possible that there are people here this morning who believe in Jesus, but didn't realize that that meant acknowledging that he is despotes, kyrios, Lord of lords. Have never submitted and surrendered their will to Jesus. That they might be born of the Spirit, born again, given new life. Father, you call, your call to us to surrender our heart and our will and our lives to you through faith in Jesus, trusting what he did on our behalf. Father, I thank you that on that cross, God was propitiated. The redemption price of our sin was paid. The barrier of sin was removed that we might be reconciled to God through regeneration, the rebirth of our spirit as the Holy Spirit brings life to those who truly place their trust, surrender their will, turn from their sin in obedience to Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your incredible, unspeakable gift of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.